Today it is humbling in many ways to open God's Word as we consider the next covenant in our series on the the covenants that God makes with various people throughout the Old Testament, and it points to the New. And one of the reasons for that, if you went to uh, the T4G conference, you may think, this sounds oddly familiar, and and you would be correct. The the seeds um, of this message were really planted in my heart back at at, uh, at that event by uh, Dr. Ligon Duncan, who's the uh, a wonderful preacher and a, a president of the Presbyterian Seminary, and just a wonderful man of God, and he preached on preaching Christ from the Old Testament, he began with this covenant. Now, it could no doubt be said of all the covenants that we've talked about so far and the texts surrounding them that there's much more that could be said. I know you might not think so, but there's much more that could be said and probably ought to be said about all the covenants so far. But since our purpose uh, was to see how the covenants fit together and sort of see an overall picture, we are going to move on from the Mosaic Covenant. Again, there's much more we could say about the Mosaic Covenant that we talked about last week, but we're going to move now from the Mosaic Covenant to another one of the most famous famous covenants. Uh, in fact, it might be um, the most well-known. You said, well, you said that last week. Well, <laughs> and you said the one before that was the most important, and the one before that was the most important. Well, here's the, here's the, the thing. The covenant that's most important is the one that, that you find yourself in, and the truth is you find yourself in the culmination of all of them. And the reason that they're each so important is because none of them stand alone without an interconnectedness to the one before it and the one after it. So they are all connected. But today we do come to a very, very important covenant that God makes with his servant David. As you might have guessed, uh, since the, the covenant with Moses is sometimes referred to as the Mosaic Covenant, this is often referred to as the Davidic Covenant. And so this is the covenant that God makes with David as he's sitting on the throne. It's one of the most important, at least in Christian circles, the most well-known. Now, you may have noticed that as we move through these, that God is doing something very significant as He begins, as it, as it were, in creation and history to begin to more and more define what He's doing in history. He's becoming more specific. Yeah, in the first place, He makes a, a covenant with all of creation, sometimes referred to as the Adamic covenant. And then after that, He makes a covenant with Noah. So He makes a covenant with all of creation. Then He makes a covenant with the remainder of creation. Then He makes a covenant with Abraham. And that covenant is repeated to Isaac and Jacob. So He, he makes a covenant essentially with three individuals, a, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, because he repeats the exact same covenant with all three. And so this covenant was made with a family. And then he goes from a family, and now he's going to make a covenant with a man. So he is further and further narrowing the scope of his purpose, not the scope of the intent or the agenda, but just how he is going to fulfill and complete his agenda in history. So he's becoming more and more specific. And the reason that God is becoming more specific is so that when the ultimate agenda, the end game, the purpose of all of this is fulfilled when Christ arrives as the Messiah to redeem creation, nobody can miss it. 
because he has been further and further narrowing and defining what he's doing as he's gone through history so that when the Messiah comes, you can look back at the covenants and say, yes, I see how he made a covenant with this group and that led to a covenant with this smaller group which led to a covenant with a family which led to a covenant with a man. Now, you think, well, he made a covenant, we talked about last week, with a nation. Isn't that more broad? He made a covenant essentially with Moses as the head of the nation. Now he's making a covenant with David, who is a king of the nation. But why a king? Because God is not just making a family or people group. He is not just creating a group of people that will be his own. He's not just creating a nation. God is desperately interested in and committed to the covenant he made with Abraham. He is interested in and desperately committed to the covenant he made with uh, Moses and the nation of Israel. Those are important things, but that is not where God's agenda stops. He is not just interested in being a family God, which is essentially what you have in Genesis, in, in Abraham and Abraham's offspring. Yahweh is sort of their family God. It's not until the event of the Exodus that God becomes sort of uh, without bounds and he reveals to his people, I am not just your God, I am the God and I am God over all the nations. And so he makes of them a nation and fulfills his promises to Abraham in that event. But God is not just interested in the nation of Israel. And sometimes if you listen to some uh, modern preachers and writers, they somehow seem to think or imply that God's agenda was to create the nation of Israel. And then separate and apart from that, you have the, the Gentiles grafted in, and they can come along too, but it's all about the nation of Israel. God is not interested in just a nation. God doesn't want a nation. Well, what's bigger than a nation? A kingdom. The difference between a nation and a kingdom is that a kingdom covers many nations. And that is why God says all people from all nations and all tribes and tongue will be mine. All tribes and tongues, all peoples from all nations will praise me. That's what God's agenda is. It's the redemption of all peoples because he's not building a nation. He's building a kingdom. And that kingdom isn't limited to a nation or a nation state of Israel. It is a kingdom that is global. He did it through the individuals and the covenants that we've talked about. But that was not the end of it. We've yet to see the end of it because his kingdom is still growing. Now, God is still driving and pressing history for his own purpose toward a very specific end. And sometimes if we are not careful, we are tempted to look around us, particularly in the world situation in which we find ourselves, and wonder, is God still a God of history? Does he still have control? Is he still manipulating things in human history? Is he still raising empires and putting down kings? Is he still raising nations and putting them down for his own purposes? And the answer is a resounding, yes, he is. Do I understand everything he's doing as I look around me and you look around you in this world today? No, I do not. But I am thankful I don't have to because I know the one who does. And he is at the helm and we do not need to be unnerved or discouraged because God is still pressing history towards a very specific outcome in building his kingdom. It's undeniable. 
God wanted the world to be able to see when the Messiah got here. And the funny thing is, we, we think, well, how could anyone have missed it if you just look back at the promises like we've been doing? If, if you just look back at the history and the prophecies made about Jesus, how could anyone miss it? And they did. Well, here's something sometimes we forget in Christianity is not all of them missed it. Because if we're not careful, we lump all the Jewish people together and say, well, you know, the Jews in Jesus' day, they missed him. Well, no. Some of them missed him, but the first church was Jewish. The first Christians were Jewish. In fact, it's not until a certain point in Acts when Paul comes to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and says, can we include the Gentiles? Because the early church was primarily Jewish. So not all of the Jewish people missed him. We're going to look at a passage here in just a little while where they, they actually recognized Jesus for who he was and what he, what he claimed to be. So God's working to a greater purpose than just the nation of Israel. Paul says it this way, that it is the circumcised of heart, that those in Christ who are the true descendants of Abraham. Greater than Abraham, greater than the nation of Israel, there is the kingdom of God. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to look at God's promise to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to work through verses 1 to 18. Now, just to set the scene for you, they have brought the Ark of the Covenant back into the city of Jerusalem. You might recall the story. Uh, they had parked it um, at some, uh, oh, I think it says Obed-Edom is his name. They had parked it at Obed-Edom's house, and God had blessed Obed-Edom because of the presence of the Ark. So David decided it would be good to have the Ark in the city. So they go down and get, they get the Ark. And as they're bringing the Ark into the city, symbolizing the presence of God, David danced before the Lord. That's the scene now. Verse 7. Now, it came about when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains, or a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But, in, but it came about that same night, that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who shall build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the shepherds which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built for me a house? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be ruler 
over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. From the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies." The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make for you a house. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from me as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. It's interesting to me, and we need to recognize that the word house, there's sort of a play on words as you go through these passages, uh, and the word is house, because David uses house in one way, and then God uses house in two different ways. And so God, David says in the first two verses, we see David's comparison and his desire. He's comparing where he's living with where God is living. And he recognizes that there is something out of whack here, that there's something incongruent about this situation because he knows, here am I, lowly David, and I live in a house lined with cedar. It was big, impressive, and expensive. It was the royal home. It was his palace. And he said, I, being just a man, live in a house of fine cedar. And yet God, being highly and ho- highly lifted up and holy, lives in a tent. Now, it was a nice tent. It was a big tent. It was an expensive tent. And if you look in the Old Testament where they build the tabernacle, you'll understand. It was a very costly, very precise, very fine tent. But in the end, it was just a tent. And David said, there's something wrong with this picture when a lowly man dwells in a house lined with cedar, and yet God lives in a tent. And so David wants to correct this. This is the best of David. It shows his humility. He's recognizing that he owes everything to God. And by the way, he's not wrong about that because God's going to reaffirm that in just a minute. He's going to remind David of from whence he has come. But David wants to build God a temple. And Nathan says, go, do everything that's in your heart. Yes, good idea. Go build for God a house. But God had other ideas. Now, the Nathan, Nathan tells us later when we have Solomon finally pray over the new temple that he has built, he says that Solomon or Nathan was right to tell David to go. So Solomon or Nathan didn't make a mistake. It's just God had a little bit different plan. So God puts it in the heart of David to build him a house. Well, that's a different kind of house. David's talking about his house, which is the palace lined with cedar. Now he's talking about a house, but he's talking about a temple where God will reside. 
But God reminds him, and I love the way the Lord gently <laughs> sort of reminds David who he is, which you would think, well, David is being humble, right? Because he wants to, he wants to build a house for God who he knows is his superior. He's God and I'm not. But look what God says to him. And, and incidentally, this is the longest recorded monologue attributed to God since the days of Moses. This is the longest consistent monologue or narrative we have attributed to God since the days of Moses. 197 words God speaks to David. And Ligon Duncan says, and I quote, These 197 words of God to David are arguably the single most significant role of any scripture found in the Old Testament in shaping the Christian understanding of Jesus. And you'll see why as we work through this. And Nathan told him to go, but it came about the same night. This is what God says. Go and say to my servant David, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? In other words, if you were truly uh, humbling yourself, you would understand you are not qualified to build for me a dwelling. If I want a dwelling, I will tell you about it, just like he did in the wilderness. When he wanted that dwelling, he told them how to make it very precisely, and they made it. Now it's David's idea. And it's, it's funny how every, t not every time, but many times in Scripture, you see when we have big ideas, God has completely different ideas. Dave one, David wants to build God a temple, and, and God says, are you going to build me a house? Well, it's kind of like when Peter and James and John are at the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter starts talking about all the things they're going to do. We're going to build a tabernacle. We're going to build an altar for one for you, one for Elijah. We're going to do this. And, and God says, uh, the Bible says God interrupted him and said, this is my son. Listen to him. In other words, start tell, stop telling me all the stuff you're going to do and listen to me for just a minute. So God speaks. Are you going to build me a house? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, in, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I've gone with all the sons of did I ever say a word to anybody about building me a house? The implied answer is no. He didn't. But he dwelt with his people. And we see in chapter... Uh, Chapter 7, verses 4 to 7, we see the great condescension of God. And by condescension, it means to come down, to lower yourself. In most, in most uses, condescending is not a good word. If you say about somebody, you know, uh, you might say, you know, so, sister, so-and-so. She's just so condescending. Okay, that's rarely a compliment. Because the idea is that we are equal, and yet this person looks down on me. And it makes us not happy. God condescended because he is high and holy and we are not. And yes, he condescended to his people. And wherever they went, he dwelt with them. He did not want to be removed from his people. Whatever they went through, he went through. Wherever they went, he went. He led them by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night because God was with his people because God is the ultimate condescender. In other words, you and I can't possibly imagine the level of condescension it takes for a holy God to dwell with an earthly people. If you want to come close, you have to read the account when Martin Luther finally received the, the, the momentous uh, moment when he discovered or declared it is by faith alone, by Scripture alone, and he finally understood that. You understand he was in the tower. 
Oh, the tower is, yeah, he's up on his high lofty study on the top. No, the tower was a reference to the place in the castle where uh, he was in the boys' room. And he thought to himself, God would condescend to a people like this? Yes. And then he recognized, it's got to be by faith. Because this is the kind of people we are. This is the kind of creature we are. And yet God loves us and became, if you can believe it, one of us. That's the condescension of God we see, which is a wonderful act on his part. But he said, you, I've never asked you for a house of cedar. So he makes, he goes on in verse 8 and begins a covenant with David. And we read that for the sake of time. I'll not read it word for word again. But basically what God says is this. I'm going to remind you, I took you from following sheep to leading people. That, that's quite a step, David. Don't forget from whence you have come. I took you from following the sheep to leading my people. I have cut the enemies off from you. I have handed them into your hands. I removed Saul for you. I have given you rest. I have put you as prince of my people that you should rule. Furthermore, he said, and it's, it's a contrary statement. It's juxtaposed to the idea that David would build God a house. God says, furthermore, I will build you a house. And when God uses the word house, in this sense, it is talking about a dynasty. Okay, he's not talking about a cedar-lined house. David already had that. He's not talking about a tent. He is talking about a dynasty. And so God says, not only will you not build me a house, but I will build for you a house, and I will establish your kingdom. And the one who comes after you, I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for me in my name. He's the one that shall build my house. See what you think? Well, in fact, I have an, um, some old Bibles I, I pick up. I don't know, I just like old books and Bibles. And so every once in a while you get one that has some writing in it. And I like those even better because you can kind of see what people are thinking. And somebody put in here, under uh, he shall build a house. And this part where it talks about uh, he will be a son and he will build a house. They, they put in there in the margin, Solomon. Only in the human sense. Now, Solomon built the temple, but that is not the son that God is talking about. Collectively, a number of times in the Old Testament, the, the nation Israel, the people of Israel, are called the Son of God. Collective as a nation. Only one individual is ever called the Son of God, and it is this Son. And it is not Solomon. He says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I'll be a father to him, and he'll be a son to me. Not of yours but a son to me. It's the only person in the Old Testament called the son of God in that, in that way. And I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men or the stripes of men. Now this should immediately take your mind to the passage that says, by his stripes we are healed in Isaiah. You say, well, it says when he commits iniquity. That, that, I thought Jesus was sinless. Of course he was sinless. But he became iniquity. He became sin. And when he did, God poured out his wrath. By his stripes, we are healed. Now, 
Now, the biggest theological problem in the Old Testament is this. God's promises failed. God's promises failed. 721, the Assyrians come down. They defeat the northern kingdom. You, you may recall by this time they had split under Rehoboam and over some tax issues. And um, You had the southern kingdom. You had two tribes in the southern kingdom. You had ten tribes in the northern kingdom. And the Assyrians had come down under Sennacherib. They have, they have overrun the northern kingdom. It has fallen. It is no more. They get down to Jerusalem. They camp outside Jerusalem in like 722. And they, they are going to take the city of Jerusalem. But God sends an angel and kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Now, you can be a, a powerful empire, which the Assyrians were the largest ever in history so far at the time, but you cannot sustain losing 185,000 of your soldiers at one time. They lost them in one night by one angel, by the way. Apparently, it only takes one angel to kill 185,000 men. So anyway, uh, the Babylonians used this moment of weakness, and then so they took over the Assyrians, then you have the Babylonian Empire. Okay, we move forward, 586 B.C. If you look in 2 Kings, verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylons, now comes... In the ninth year of his reign, it says, Second Kings 25, Now it came about in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came. He and all his army against Jerusalem camped against it and built a siege wall around it. Now, people in the city might have been thinking, you know what, they're never going to take Jerusalem. Look what God did last time. They have, wait till the angel shows up. Uh, problem is, God had other plans. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe that the city, there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls. Verse 5 says, But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered with him. Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and he passed sentence on him. And this is what they did, verse 7. And they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah, who was king, before his eyes, then put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and then they bound him with bronze fetter and brought him to Babylon. You know what happened in that moment? In that moment, the sons of the king, the descendants, the dynasty of David ended. There were no more sons to be king. And so when the, when the Babylonians put out Zedekiah's eyes, the last thing he saw, cruelly, was his children being slaughtered and God's promise broken. He has clearly said, you will always have a kingdom, you always have somebody on the throne, and now it had just been broken. And so the greatest theological problem in the Old Testament is the seemingly failure of God's covenant. So for the rest of the Old Testament, you see this thing picked up over and over and over again. They're lamenting about all the struggles they've been through. Psalm 89 is a prime example. Psalm 89 is about 2 Samuel 7. And it talks, talks about the covenant with David, but then it starts talking and lamenting about where they are now. Psalm 2 is about 2 Samuel 7. 
So you have the psalmist pouring out their hearts to God about what is going on here. The northern kingdom fell. Now the southern kingdom fell. David's dynasty has ended when you promised we would always have land, we would always be in the land, and that David would always have a a descendant on the throne, and both things have seemingly failed. And so the rest of the Old Testament picks up on this struggle. You see it in Isaiah. You see it in Ezekiel. You see it in Jeremiah. Over and over, they're lamenting on what's going on. And they came up with a solution, and this is what they finally decided. It is not that God has failed, but we have failed. We have sinned. We have turned away from God, and we deserve to be out of the land. We deserve to be occupied. We deserve this great tragedy. Jeremiah starts with the people acknowledging that they deserve to be in bondage. They're crying out to God, what is happening? You look at Jeremiah 31 to 34, you'll see it played out very pointedly. But the second half of their message was this, behold, a day is coming when God will make a new covenant, not like the old one. If we repent... The day will come. He'll be a son to God. So we have this seemingly failure of God to keep his promise. And the Jewish people are crying out, what's what's going on? Well, for 600 years, they're waiting. They're waiting. And frankly, some of them had finally just given up. 600 years is a long time. The promises have failed. There's no hope. We better do something different. So they they fashioned sort of their own way to worship God. And they stopped looking. 600 years go by. So how is it that we see the New Testament deal with this passage? Well, you don't have to look far. In fact, if if you have your your Bible, look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. You don't have to wait long. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, this is pure Old Testament language. Ten or eleven times in the Old Testament, it says, this is the book of the genealogies of Adam. This is the book of the genealogies of Noah. This is the book of genealogies of one of his sons. This is the book of the genealogies of, of, of Moses. So we get this genealogies uh, phrasing and this language. This is pure Old Testament stuff. Now, keep in mind, Matthew's written to the Jewish people, and he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Who? The son of David. The son of Abraham. And in that one verse, you know, he's he's taking their mind back to the promise to Abraham. He's taking their minds back to the promise to David. Here is the king and the one that he was talking about in 2 Samuel 7. Matthew is saying, look, we all know the Davidic covenant. We know what God promised. And we've been waiting for 600 years. And guess what? He's here. This is the one right here. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of Abraham. And he begins to work his way back and show how he's connected to David. You think, why did he have all... You ever wonder why they have all this begatting going on in Matthew? Because for us, it's, I don't... I, you know, I, I don't recognize these names. They're hard to pronounce. I don't know where they fit in history. Where, that he's doing this to prove to his readers, which are Jewish, they've been waiting for 600 years, that this is the one. 
And he does it in almost every chapter in his gospel. In chapter 2, verse 2, where he, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Well, who, who's speaking there? The wise men from the east. Even the pagans know this. We're waiting for a descendant of David, who is the king of the Jews. So they come and in, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. We, where, where's the one been born king of the Jews? In chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. What kingdom? The kingdom he promised to David. The kingdom of God is at hand. He is here. Again, in 5.3 and 4.17, he talks about this language. He uses this language of kingdoms. Now, the first time Jesus speaks in the gospel, in chapter 3, verse 13 and following, the first time Jesus speaks in the gospel, it's also the first time of three that God speaks in the gospel at his baptism. And John is baptizing Jesus, and he says, Shall I baptize you? I have need to be baptized by you. Should I really baptize you? And John says, or Jesus says, Permit it for now to fulfill all righteousness. And not all of them missed him. And this happens repeatedly through the New Testament. You look at the letters of Paul, he talks about who are the true heirs of Abraham. Why? He's taking us back to that covenant. He talks about in Romans, he starts out, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of David, according to men. So he, all through the New Testament, there are too many to go into, I don't have time, but just know as you read your New Testament, when they talk about the kingdom, when they talk about David and the son of David, it is important to tie us to this promise that there would always be a king for an eternal kingdom through David. In Acts chapter 2, verse 30, Peter's preaching to the people. He's preaching to Jewish people. And he says, you have been waiting for 600 years for the descendant of David, the Messiah, to come. And he was here and you killed him. And it says in Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 30, they were, they were cut to the quick. And they cry out, what should we do? Because they have murdered the Messiah for whom they had been waiting. They, they believed Peter. When he, he walked them through it, when he pointed it out, they believed him and it terrified them. We have killed the Messiah. What are we going to do now? They're terrified. But then Peter tells them the glorious truth. If you will but give your life to him, he will forgive you your sins. You can be made whole. That not only that, you didn't take his life. He came for the purpose of going to the cross. Thus fulfilling the covenant. And not just the covenant, but God's purpose in history, which is and always has been redemption. So what can we learn? First of all, when God makes a promise, he will keep it. And the answer typically is always the same. 
what their answer was, wait on the Messiah. When you and I struggle, sometimes what we need to do is just, just wait on God, wait on the Messiah. God keeps His promise. We can also learn that when sin seems to prevail and there's no hope at all of ever being all you should be, then wait on Jesus. He is faithful. He says He's faithful and just to forgive our sins when we confess. Faithful. In other words, He, he is faithful to you. And he is just. In other words, he's, he alone has the right before God to forgive your sin. He cancels the punishment, the debt of your sin, but then he cleanses you from all unrighteousness. In other words, he makes it as though you never did sin, ever. What an incredible thing. The greatest theological problem for us or for Israel was that promises of God seem to be unfulfilled. But the greatest theological problem for you and I is this. God is holy and we are not. But when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. It was your salvation and mine. You know what Hebrews tells us he did after that? He ascended to the Father and sat down where? On the throne, the right hand of God. The throne of what? The kingdom. The kingdom he promised to David 583 years before, or 587 years before Jesus was ever born. I will build for you a house. Should take our minds, I hope, since we spent so much time in it, to First Peter two five. It says you are being built up a house. What house? The one promised to David. You're being built up as living stones with Jesus as the chief stone, the cornerstone. You're being made into a house, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. A royal priesthood. That's in First Peter. Where's he pulling from? The Mosaic Covenant. You shall be my people, I shall be your God, and you shall be to me a royal priesthood. He's pulling from the Davidic Covenant that you are being made into a house with living stones. All the covenants point to the Christ and are fulfilled in him. Jesus says that he build, builds his house. What's his house? His church. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. In other words, Hades is a reference to the fact that people die. Okay? There will never, ever be a time in human history where there are not those who believe in Jesus. Now, there may be fewer. There may only be a remnant, but there will always be those who believe in Christ because the gates of Hades will not prevail against his house, the church. And here's the question for you this morning. Are you in the house? And if not, do you want in the house? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to your promises to your people. And Father, you have never made a promise or a commitment or a covenant that you have not fulfilled and kept, and that has not changed here today. And Father, when you say that by the blood of Christ we are made whole and clean, as amazing and mind-boggling as that is to us, it is true. Father, help us to live by... Your word, not by our feelings or emotions. Father, help those that need to, to 
recognize that, Lord, you didn't intend us to dwell in guilt or regret. You sent your Son that we might have joy, we might have peace, and that the blood of Christ is good enough for you. It's certainly good enough that we should forgive ourselves. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.